Hello, and welcome to Taking the Party Out of Politics. This is a podcast about understanding how politics is supposed to work, why it isn't working as well as it should be working, and what we might be able to do about it. Because by understanding a little more clearly how things are supposed to work and why they're a bit messed up, we might be able to get things to work a bit better, perhaps even a lot better. Now, this is not a podcast about party politics. This is about politics without the political parties, literally taking the party out of politics. This is about politics, not party politics, just politics. It's about the systems which get us a government and about how effective those systems are at delivering good government, such as good planning, good organisation and generally delivering the things we need. This is a podcast about how the systems are supposed to work, whether you're left-wing or right-wing. And this podcast is about understanding what is supposed to happen, understanding why it isn't always happening in the way it's supposed to, and it's about understanding what sorts of things we might do to make things better. This is season one, in which we're taking a look at how government is supposed to work from the perspective of us, the voters. In season two, we'll be looking at how government is supposed to work from the perspective of someone trying to get elected, and then, having been elected, trying to do a good job. That's where political parties can really get in the way. Finally, in season three, we'll be looking at what we might be able to do to make things work a bit better. In the introduction, we had an overview of what the issues are, and a general idea of the route we're going to take through this. Last time, in episode two, we started to think about why we have a government at all, and the tacit, perhaps unspoken, agreement which exists between those who do the governing and those who agree to be governed, what we call the social contract, such as the exchange of our good behaviour and our taxes in return for our safety and for the public services we all need. This is episode three. Today, we're going to look at some of the different possible political systems and use that to explore what we mean by the word democracy, along with other ideas such as consideration for others and respect for minorities. Then, we'll move from there to understand the particular form of democracy which we use. Because, though we might blithely use the term democracy, we actually have a fairly specialised form of democracy. The system we have is actually more accurately referred to as representative democracy. But what does that word representative actually mean in this context? What does it actually mean in practice? We could certainly ask ourselves whether our government truly represents us. Is our government a good representation of who we are? Is it a good representation of what we want? Does it represent our needs accurately? What do we actually mean when we use terms like democracy or representative democracy? So, let's get started. Let's have a quick review of where we've got to so far. In episode two, we talked about the social contract. So, we understand that societies function because the members of those societies work together in a sort of unspoken agreement that some compromises are worth making, behaving with respect for others, paying taxes, in return for certain advantages, communal services, safety. An unspoken agreement, but one which is understood to be there, even if we don't think about it in those terms, at least not all of the time. We call that implicit agreement the social contract. 
The social contract gives us security and good laws, and that allows us to live safely and to live well. Okay, perhaps not always as well as we might do, but to live better than we would do if we were just all acting completely independently. There are lots of interesting questions to explore about how good our social contract is in practice. Are the rules by which we have to live fair for everyone? Are the expectations placed on us reasonable in return for the benefits we actually get from being part of society? If we were going to design a social contract today, would we design it like this? Probably not. After all, this is just where we happen to have ended up. It's not as though we ended up here because at some point when prehistoric humans set up the first permanent villages, everybody agreed that in the 21st century we were going to have mortgages, tax bills, social security and speed limits. And, perhaps very importantly, a contract has two sides. It's not just about us, the governed. It's also about the people who do the governing. In our case, that's our elected government, our representative democracy. But in other cases, it could be a king or a president or any one of a number of other forms of government. It doesn't matter what form the government is, there are two sides to the social contract. Yes, we agree to be governed, we agree to follow the rules, we agree to live up to the expectations which are placed on us, even if there aren't explicit rules about all of those things. But those who do the governing also have to live up to their expectations. And do they? Do our governments live up to the expectations we should have of them? So how does that work? How do we manage that social contract in a way which benefits us all, not just the leaders or the rulers? In fact, what do we do if the laws are not good? Throughout history, and almost certainly before history was ever recorded, there have been different answers to this question, from pressuring a ruler to change their mind, to killing an unpopular king, to civil war, to revolution. In the modern world, many countries organise things in what is called a democracy. So, democracy. Let's start at the beginning. What is democracy? A relatively small word, but one which carries many, many different meanings for many, many different people, not least for the different assumptions which might be placed on the use of the term. Some might speak of bringing democracy to countries which don't have either a democratic political system or to countries and people who haven't developed all the habits and customs which go along with making it possible for a democratic system to bumble along. After all, in even the countries with the most modern democratic systems, there have been problems. And there continue to be problems. It sort of works some of the time, perhaps even most of the time. It might be, as they say better than all the alternatives. But it's not necessarily great, or easy, or simple. What is simple is to look at where the word comes from. The word democracy comes from two Greek words, demos and kratos. Demos means people, and kratos means power. So demos plus kratos is democracy. Democracy means that the people have the power. What does this actually mean in practice? Well, if it's just me deciding where I want to go for a walk, it's up to me to decide where I go. If there are two of us, we might discuss it together. We might think about things like how much time we have, how energetic we're feeling, whether there's anything we want to get back to watch on TV, and agree where we go for our walk. If there are three of us, we might all agree after a similar discussion and all set off together. However, 
two of us might want to go for a long walk, and one might want to go on a short walk. Well, that's not a problem. It's a democracy, and most people, the majority, two out of three, want to go for a long walk. And that's democracy. So, at least in this imaginary situation, where we have all somehow committed to going together for some sort of walk, a long walk it is, for all of us. So, that's democracy for you. No one was telling us what to do. The decision, long walk or short walk, was completely up to us. No one who was not going for a walk was involved. However, once we had a decision, a majority decision, then we all had to go along with it. Hmm. But what about the person who might not have wanted to go for the long walk? Or for the short walk? Yes, what about respecting minorities? That's exactly the right next question. Now, obviously, in a real democracy, people who want to go for a short walk are not forced to go for a long walk. Wherever possible, we respect minorities, and people can do more or less whatever they want. In pretty much all democratic societies, the working arrangement is that you can do whatever you want to do, as long as it doesn't adversely affect everyone else. We might describe this as being free to do whatever we want, up to the point where what we want to do might start to restrict someone else's freedom. You can play your music as loudly as you want, up to the point where it's disturbing your neighbour. And yes, the person stuck in the car, stuck outside in the rush hour, where I can feel the bass from your stereo through the walls of my building. Yes, that means you. Just because you may think that your music is cool, making me listen to it, and especially making me listen to just part of it, either the bass from the car stereo or the tss from your earphones, if they're too loud on the train, making me listen to your music isn't cool. Even if I could hear it all, it wouldn't be cool. Even if I liked your taste in music and I could hear it all clearly, it still isn't cool to make me listen to it just because you want to listen to it. And making me listen to it doesn't make you look cooler. It just makes you look self-obsessed and a bit desperate. Now, OK, OK, calm down, Andrew. Yes, OK, I have a bit of a thing about people who play their music too loudly. Sorry about that. But the point is valid. You're free to do pretty much whatever you want, up to the point where what you're doing starts to impact on someone else's freedom. For example, my freedom to sleep in peace. So, let's go back to the walk. If two of us want to go for a long circular walk, and one wants to go for a short circular walk, and we all meet up at the bus later on, well, that's fine. Your minority short walk is not affecting my majority long walk, although you might find that you have to wait for the majority to get back if you just went for a short walk. Because what you can't do after your short walk is just drive off and leave us. You have to wait for us. And if the walking boots had been on the other feet, and the majority had just wanted a short walk, the minority can't force the majority to wait around. Well, at least not for too long. In practice, we might actually be a bit flexible, because we understand that next time it might be us, and we want others to be a bit flexible with us. If you remember back to the last episode, this is pretty much like the idea which the political philosopher John Rawls was talking about when he described the original position. We would want the rules to be set up so that they would be fair, or at least mostly fair, at least most of the time, whether we ended up finding ourselves in the minority or in the majority. All of the time, some of the time, or even never any of the time at all. A bit of tolerance and flexibility, a bit of give and take, can go a long way. So, in a democracy, people have the power, 
and the majority decides what is going to happen. But in practice, a bit of flexibility and tolerance means that not everyone has to do exactly the same thing as long as the alternatives aren't too disruptive. Because if the minority is requiring the majority to fit in with what the minority wants, especially if it's in a way which adversely affects the majority, well, that's not democracy anymore. In fact, looking at alternatives to democracy is a useful way of understanding what a democracy is. Let's start with aristocracy. If there is a minority which is setting the rules, then we probably call that an aristocracy particularly if the group which sets the rules has inherited its rule-setting power from their parents. One group in society has all the power. Then there's dictatorship. If there's a single person who is setting the rules, then we might call that person a dictator, and we would be living in a dictatorship. If we called our dictator a king or queen, and we allowed their children to be dictator after their death, then it would be a monarchy. If it's just a few people who have all the power for example, just the rich people, then it's an oligarchy. Oligarchy often sounds as though it has something to do with oil, particularly because we've recently heard the term Russian oligarch, and we might have some idea that many of them obtained their wealth through something to do with oil and gas, but actually it has nothing to do with oil. Well, not necessarily. Some oligarchs may have made their money from dubious oil deals, but that's another story. The Greek word oligos actually just means few, so rule by the few. So far, I think that we would all recognise that rule by a dictator, or by oligarchs, or by aristocrats, none of those is what we would understand as democracy. But these are all perfectly possible systems of government. There would still be a social contract, at least an implied one. Taxes in return for public services, such as roads and drains. Good behaviour in return for safety. The safety to get on with stuff. Living. Making a living. Meeting up with friends and so on. And there are lots of other possible variations. One of my favourites is used to describe a time when it was said that the prostitutes and other courtesans who lived and worked in the Vatican actually held all the power. That was called a pornocracy. Or if you prefer something more timeless, a kleptocracy is when officials or a ruling class take advantage of corruption to extend their personal wealth and power, typically at the expense of everyone else sometimes without even pretending to be honest. Selfish politicians? What? Surely not. If you like unusual word for things, then you might like the word cacistocracy. This is a word for anyone who has ever thought that their government was particularly useless or clueless. A cacistocracy is government by the least qualified or worst people. Some of us might even think, at least at some times, that our governments are just filled with snollygosters, people who have intelligence but no principles, especially politicians. Snollygosters who spend too much time fudgling, giving the impression of working but actually doing nothing. As has been said before, you might think that. I couldn't possibly comment. But is there any point in getting all it care about it? That means lying awake and worrying about the day ahead. We are all grumbletonians at times. That means people who are angry or unhappy with the government. We might think that our government is filled with people who are merely ultra-crepidarian. That means people who give opinions about topics they know nothing about. Or even that our governments are just filled with snollygosters. Remember, that was people who have intelligence but no principles, especially politicians. Snollygosters who spend too much time fudgling. 
giving the impression of working but actually doing nothing. Or even twatting. No, I'm not being rude. Well, not in the way you might think, because that actually means gossiping idly about unimportant things, even though I always used to assume that it referred to using certain social media channels. But on the other hand, lying awake and worrying about the day ahead, care, remember, isn't actually going to change anything. That's why here we are exploring our understanding about how things are supposed to work, so that we can work out how to make them work better. Now, that idea in itself might give you a certain shiviness. That refers to the uncomfortable feeling of wearing new underwear. But there's no time like the present. If we allow ourselves to perendinate, which is to put off until the day after tomorrow, that will merely leave us feeling philogobrilized, which is sort of having a hangover but without actually drinking. Or even frobbly-mobbly. No, no, I'm not going to explain that one. You can probably work it out, but if not, look it up. So let's push on and let's get to the point where we might be able to look at how to make things better. So where were we? Would the alternatives to democracy be any better? There are advantages, at least in terms of decision making. A dictator might, if he or she were sensible, take advice before making a decision. But in the end, the decision comes down to just one person. In a democracy, it can be tiresome to have to ask everyone what they want to do, perhaps having to persuade different people to agree with things. It all takes time. In fact, at least some of the time, some people actually quite like to be told what to do. They like not having to think about complicated questions. Even mean dictators can sometimes be seen, at least by some of the people for some of the time, as a sort of father figure, guiding the people for the best. For example, at least for some of the time, for at least some of the people, this was true for Stalin, even though he was also sending potential political challengers to forced labour camps where they were almost certain to die. Some people, and I'm not suggesting that everyone felt like this, not for a moment, but some people like the clarity which strong leadership provides. It may not be great, but you know where you stand. Well, I know that doesn't apply to me, and the fact that you're listening to this means that it almost certainly doesn't apply to you. Certainty is all very well, but it has to be a good certainty, not just a certainty that you'd better keep your head down and not get noticed or you might get sent off to a prison camp. So we mostly prefer to be free. On the whole, we tend to prefer to have more control over decisions which affect us, or at least we like to believe that we have some control over such decisions. We might, as a majority, mostly prefer long walks. But if on the third day we just want a short walk, then we want to be able to choose a short walk. So if dictatorships are more efficient at making decisions, but perhaps at least some of those decisions are the decisions we don't want, how do we organise a democracy to reach decisions more efficiently? We can't ask everyone's opinion about every little decision all the time. Now, the solution which most democratic societies use is to have some form of representative democracy. For example, in a country of 50 million people, each group of 100,000 people would choose one of their group to represent the other 99,999. Then just the 500 representatives would get together to decide what to do. Or perhaps all 50 million would elect one president, who would then take all the decisions. If the representatives were not making good decisions, then each 99,999 could select a different representative. Or if the president were not doing so, then the whole 50 million could select a different president. Hmm. 
Can you imagine a president who was not doing a good job, then not getting re-elected? I wonder. Anyway, that's the idea at least. Do a good job, get re-elected. Don't do a good job, someone else gets elected instead. In practice, there are quite a few challenges. Not least the very word, representative. Is there anyone who can truly represent the views of even a majority of the population who has elected them? Well, we'll come back to that. So, next time on Taking the Party Out of Politics, next time we will explore more of the detail of how all of that is supposed to work, taking a path from representative democracy through to party politics. For now, thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then I hope you will take the time to tell your friends. And perhaps you could also take a moment to give us a rating wherever you found us. That not only helps other people to find us, it also just really makes us feel appreciated. That would be great. Thank you.